Hello, everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. place in the home were to provide the soothing, taming, and gentle energy that would ensure harmony and social order. Industrialization created a division among women. Lower class women were forced into the factories, and middle class women were excluded from the new professions. So what changed that brought women into wage workers? Ready to wear clothes. Before the, this development, clothes were made in the home to be used in or sold by the person who made it. Three groups who purchased ready-to-wear clothes were the Army, Navy, and slaveholders of the South. This growing, the profitable industry, centered in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, was also aided by the tariffs imposed on imported clothing in 1816 and 1828. Most of this work was done at home or in small shops called slop shops under miserable conditions. Pay was at peace rates pressuring the workers to increase their output by working longer and longer hours. Cut parts were distributed throughout the countryside where at-home workers assembled them. The companies would play off the out-of-town sewers against the women in the city shops to keep wage rates low. In 1828, Matthew Carey, an Irish immigrant who had amassed a fortune in publishing, began a crusade on behalf of working women. In 1831, he estimated the average wage of sewing women at $1.25 a week, but he was corrected by the women that it was usually $1.12.5 a week and often fell below that. He later wrote that a skilled sewer, constantly employed, working early and late, could at best make only nine shirts a week. Two-thirds of her pay went to rent, leaving only 40 cents or six cents per day for food, clothing, fuel, and all other necessities. Below wages, paid to seamstresses, domestic help, and washerwomen forced them to alternatives such as begging, charity of the overseers, of the poor, stealing or starving. One more was added by Carrie, that of prostitution. In 1835, the New York Female Moral Reform Society reached the same conclusion, forced into prostitution because of ruthless economic exploitation. The New York Tayloresses began as early as 1825, overcame the anguish, desperation, and powerlessness. It took six years before they had sustained activity. In February 1835, the New York Daily Sentinel carried two items about women who worked by sewing. The first, called Facts, read, A tailor in Chatham Street, who would 
advertises for 20 or 30 seamstresses, offers the applicants for making shirts 7 cents each. The second, meeting of tailoresses. From two to 300 females had met in Mott Street to form an association for the purpose of taking measures of bettering their conditions. There was talk of a strike, but it was brought up that many did not have enough to hold out long enough to be effective. So a committee was formed to fund such needs. In June 1831, the United Tailoresses Society of New York prepared its own list of wages and declared its members would not work for less. The employers refused. The 1,600 members went out on strike. The press ridiculed the strikers, saying, since women, unlike men, were exempt from the need to support families, their demand for wages similar to those of men was ridiculous. On July 25, 1833, the Tayloresses voted to return to work. Baltimore Trade Unions When the Female Union Society of Tayloresses and Seamstresses of Baltimore, on September 20, 1833, drew up a bill of wages and voted to strike on October 1st if their demands were not met. They received assurances of support from the city's unions. By 1830, the household shoe production had given way to central shops. Massachusetts was a center for shoe making with Lynn at its hub. As early as 1829, there were 1,500 women binding and trimming shoes. At first, the wages in Lynn were comparably high, but by 1833, they began to fall. The Lynn record of January 1834 headline read, The Women Are Coming, later reporting 1,000 women holding a convention of the organization entitled Female Society of Lynn after organizing the female shoe binders went out on strike for a new wage scale. This lasted two months, ending after winning most of their demands. Women were late in organizing, but this was due in part to the hostility of existing unions who looked at female workers as competition instead of allies. The first union starting in the 1790s fought against the hiring of apprentices, unskilled labor, and women feeling all put their wages at risk of being lowered. In 1819, the journeyman tailors of New York went out on strike to prevent master tailors from hiring women. Of course, the introduction of machines into the new factories increased the divide as women and children often were hired first to tend the machines. In 1837, the economy tanked. One-third of the workforce were unemployed, and most who were still working doing so as part-time employees. Many companies closed. In 1840, the economy was growing, but the changes this brought was vast. Many farmers had lost their land, which affected the female factory workers who originally had been from those farms and could return when they wanted. This had affected labor actions tending to make such actions short-term commitments. With those farms gone, the female factory workers had nowhere to return. This made them more aggressive in demanding better wages and work conditions. Making the jobs more permanent also made them more committed to any labor actions. During the economic recession, the labor movement died out, taking the labor newspapers with it. 
1845, female factory workers renewed interest in the labor movement, creating small associations at many villages, many which created newspapers, periodicals, or magazines, some which became popular outside the locations to the point some went to other countries to subscribers. The one issue more than any other that brought female and male workers together was the 10-hour workday. Many had gained this in the 1930s, but had lost it in the economic crisis of 1837 through 1840. The 10-hour day advocates used the reasoning that those working 12 to 15-hour days had no opportunity to do anything but focus on endless toil. But a 10-hour day would allow the workers to improve themselves, and that would result in an improved society. The advocates differed on the best method to bring about this change. The movement for the 10-hour day depended on legislative action. How much pressure on legislators was shown in 1842 and 1843 when the Massachusetts legislature ignored petitions for a 10-hour day forwarded by mill workers. In the fall of 1844, a new labor organization, the England Working Men's Association came into being which gave great support to the crusade for a shorter workday. Sarah Bagley represented the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association at the 1845 convention. She was assigned the leading role in the campaign for the 10-hour day. Months later, she blanketed the mill towns with petitions. Thousands of signatures were obtained. Upon receiving the petition, the Massachusetts House of Representatives Committee on Manufacturing decided to hold hearings. Despite the vast evidence presented by witnesses of the need for a 10-hour day, the report of the committee written by Schuler was opposed to any legislation. While waiting on legislation in Massachusetts, the factory women in western Pennsylvania, members of the Female Labor Reform Association of Allegheny City, and Pittsburgh were so angered by the legislative stalling that on September 15, 1845, 5,000 workers went out on strike. They held out for almost a month, at which point some of the women decided to go back to work, but they did not remain at work long. Strikers went from factory to factory, broke open the gates, seized the workers at the machines, and dragged them outside. Although the male workers supported the Women strikers, they did not, as they had in the 1830s, think the women as too fragile to conduct a militant struggle by themselves. The New Hampshire Legislative Committee reported that employers would realize a greater profit in even less time with a 10-hour day as workers would be more vigorous and better able to work from having had more rest. New Hampshire employers did not believe so and at their insistence, clauses were added, allowing employers to draw up special contracts with workers for more than 10-hour workdays. Of course, this allowed the employers to force employees to sign these contracts or be fired and blacklisted. The workers agreed not to sign the contracts, but the workers were unable to maintain their pledge. Workers who refused to sign the contracts were fired and no one in the industry would hire them. England adopted a 10-hour day in 1847, 
It was not until 1874 before a similar law in Massachusetts was adopted. In 1860, the workshops and factories of Lynn produced 1.5 million pairs of women's and children's shoes. The wages of the shoe worker had been sharply cut, while the cost of living rose. After another cut in the fall of 1899, men were making $3 a week. Wages for women were even lower, many making as little as a dollar a week for as much as 16 hours a day. Silvis had risen to the position of president of the Iron Molders International Union in 1863 and had turned it into the largest and most effective trade union of the period. Like most other trade unionists of the time, he believed that it was the duty of organized labor to protect female workers. Women did not belong in the labor force. During the Civil War, many women joined the workforce, and although many left after, it was clear to all that they were here to stay. If the wage standards of the mechanics were to be defended, all women workers had to be organized into unions and their wages equalized with those of men. He looked to broaden the labor movement consistency to include both blacks and women. Under his influence, the National Labor Union took on a progressive approach towards women workers. At the 1866 convention, they pledged individual and undivided support to the sewing women, factory operatives, and daughters of toil. The NLU Executive Committee met in Washington, D.C. in December 1868 in a precedent-shattering action extended formal invitations to all persons interested in the labor movement, regardless of color or sex, to attend the annual convention in August. Several female delegates were admitted to the founding convention of the Colored National Labor Union in Washington, D.C. on December 6, 1869. The colored NLU in several respects took a stronger stand in defense of equal rights of women in industry and trade unions than its white counterpart. The founding convention of the New York Working Women's Labor Union held in March 1870, they appealed to the working men of the nation through the NLU to come forward and aid us in this work reform. Two men active in the NLU, Alexander Troop and William J. Jessup, conveyed this to the NLU Congress, which urged male unionists to respond to the appeal and welcome women entering into just competition with men in the industrial race of life. Next, we look at the Knights of Labor. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.